0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today, we're throwing it back uh, about four years when we talked to Erica Bergman. She is a submarine pilot, engineer, National Geographic Explorer, uh, and she took Sir Richard Branson and Fabian Cousteau, the grandson of famed ocean explorer uh, Jacques Cousteau, on a submarine adventure into the depths of the Belize Great Blue Hole. Uh, in 2013, she received National Geographic Explorers Grant for her Classroom Under the Sea project, which she would live stream expeditions to classrooms all over the country. Um, she's a great storyteller, super interesting. Uh, a line of work and what she does. And I really enjoyed this conversation. So I hope you do as much as I did. And uh, yeah, we got to probably do an updated episode with Erica because uh, such a cool thing in a unique episode for our ep- uh, podcast. So let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, but before we do don't forget we have a listener survey that we're doing we would love your feedback on the show and what changes to make what we're going to make some changes soon so love to get your input ahead of that so look at the show notes to submit your ideas all right let's jump in now So how how did it go overall? What what was it like?
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely, there's, you know, a big, a big learning curve for us. It was the first time that we've run an expedition as a, as a, this particular team. And so, you know, there's always the inevitable hurdles of working on the ocean and we just took every single one of them in stride, I think.
0: Wow. So you guys were able to actually, would, would you, for the listeners that didn't, uh, catch our first um, beforehand episode uh, because we've gotten a lot of new listeners actually in like the last few months like a lot it's really grown which is awesome could you just go over congratulations yeah yeah well you too yeah your your achievements huge compared to that but uh, but could you just go over what you guys did and uh what was the goal and did you succeed
1: yeah i mean i mean uh definitely so In um, November of 2018, we shipped our little three-person submarine Stingray 500 um, across, you know, frosty North America on the back of a truck, and then we put it on a ship in Texas, and we went by boat to Lighthouse Reef, which is 40 miles off the coast of Belize. And we were going to a very specific spot in Lighthouse Reef called the Great Blue Hole. It's this huge oceanic sinkhole in the middle of the ocean. Um, it's It is exactly just a great blue hole. that's what it looks like.
0: yeah pretty, pretty um, creative we going, naming,
1: huh <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Jacques Cousteau named it, so you can you can credit one of the greats
0: okay <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah we had a, we had a couple of missions um sort of our two-fold goal, I guess, was to map the Great Blue Hole using super high-resolution sonar and then also to take people worldwide on this journey with us through broadcast television.
0: Now, you guys live-streamed it on the Discovery Channel. Um, did that go successfully?
1: Well, yeah, of course, it it did. We did do a live broadcast. Um, of course, the ocean is the ocean. We... Um, <laughs> we had big um Caribbean style winter storms. So the first week we were down there, the wind was blowing um really, really hard and just making all of our prep work, just scattering all of our prep work. We just had to like hold tight at sea before we could actually go in and prep for it. So when it actually came right, down right. to um live stream day, everything we'd basically had one or two days to um to dive and prep for it. So we had bless his heart. Uh, Richard Branson came out a day early, um, to sort of help us with it. Um, basically help with the, the, the reorganization based on weather. And we actually dove the day before the live stream. And then on the day of the live stream, we broadcast live from the ship. And, um, we didn't have the big, the big fiber optic tether down, because it would have just gotten chopped up by the ship moving and the waves rolling. So we broadcast live for two hours from the Great Blue Hole in Belize. And we showcased footage from the dive the day before with Richard Branson and Fabian Cousteau, um, all the while on a huge rocking ship. And what you couldn't see is that the entire live broadcast crew was seasick in the background. <laughs> but yeah, we made it, we made it work.
0: Gosh, that is so crazy! And now you were the chief pilot of that, correct?
1: Yeah, I piloted that one. We have um, three pilots at Aquatica Submarines right now, and so we were actually there for two full weeks of diving after the live broadcast. And we we take turns piloting. But on that one, I was I was the the lucky pick to pilot with Branson and Cousteau, um, uh, just because the the plan had been to have this fiber optic tether running out and. Um, so just experience wise, it made sense for me to, to do that one. And it was, it was great fun. I mean, Richard Branson is very chill and Fabian Cousteau is pretty entertaining. So we just had a fun two hour dive together.
0: That's awesome. Now, yeah, uh, I don't know much about Fabian's uh, personality, but you know, Richard Branson is obviously, he seems super laid back. I've listened to some interviews and I'm like, wow, he, he, he's very approachable, I'm sure he made you feel comfortable. Were you at all nervous? I mean, those are two big names that you're piloting in a in a hole that's never been done before. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be tough.
1: Not really. I love that stuff, and we we did have a, a reconnaissance dive the day before, so I knew um, I knew the hole pretty well. I kind of had a good mental map of it from a reconnaissance dive the day before, and they were both so chill that. We just we just had a good time, you know. It's it, I kind of go on to autopilot and just have nice conversations with them and um, show them the things that I've learned about the hole and and learn things that they've maybe read about and are finally seeing for the first time. So we just had a very you know calm and collected dive. That's usually how it is. Even if somebody thinks they're nervous at the surface, as soon as they go underwater, it's so dark and quiet and calm that you just go into this its like a temple the whole underwater world is this giant
0: temple man that that just sounds so fantastic because there's so much of it the underwater world and it's also freezing cold here in denver today so that just sounds somewhere tropical like that in that kind of I, I know what you mean it's it's like when you're scuba diving or snorkeling it's just this trance it puts you in it's wow that's a, that's awesome so um what did you what what did you discover
1: from the beginning there has been you know there's a there's a nice precedent set by these technical scuba divers and by Jacques Cousteau himself Jacques Cousteau when he kind of made them whole famous he actually took one of his little submarines down for a quick, he didn't pilot it, but one of his guys did. For a quick little, you know, ten-minute boot to the bottom. So they they have seen it, and then uh, a group of, of scuba divers from the Cambrian Foundation went down for a series of quick dives, but they're all limited um, in bottom time. And so, going back now, you know, thirty years later, we were able to spend extensive bottom time and really map the bottom and see things that nobody has seen before. Um, So we just kind of took the foundation that other people have laid and added modern technology and extended bottom time. So there were definitely a few discoveries down there that nobody has ever seen before, and they were, you know, a little bit life-changing.
0: Okay, how so? That's uh, that's a cliffhanger.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um no it was it was cool. I think I think the the first part of the dive is really quite fun. I mean, people are expecting it to be of oh, the Caribbean, it's so tropical, so yes, you do dis you descend immediately right down this kind of reef edge, but the water at the reef edge is the murkiest, I would say, so it's kind of this like milky view at a beautiful colorful coral reef, but the visibility's not great, and then you go down to about 130 feet and that's the max that the scuba divers usually go. So scuba divers will go down, take a quick look at the at the um, stalactite caverns that are down there and then race back up to the surface because they've used up their, their their bottom time basically. And these these caverns are huge flowstones. They're stalactites that formed back when this was a dry cave when sea level was five hundred feet shallower um, before the last you know giant glacial maximum melted fourteen thousand years ago. So when this was a cave during the ice age, all these stalactites formed, and they're probably, oh my gosh, they're like forty and fifty feet tall. They're huge stalactites. And then as sea level has risen, the, the entire Great Blue Hole has slowly been kind of chewed up as sea level has risen and wind and wave and tides have eroded down this limestone. And eventually, the top of the cave collapsed in, and that's what formed this huge sinkhole. It's, it's a giant underwater cave that has been filled in by rising sea level. So these stalactites are maybe, maybe 100,000 years old. And um, they're pretty majestic.
0: You know, I've I've been in a handful of caves, and and it is an awesome, in every sense of the word, experience. But never underwater, and for one of these caves to have stalactites so big, oh my gosh, it's so old. It, it takes so much time for those to form. On top of there's there's a lot of processes going on. Obviously, it wasn't underwater at some point, formed this cave and then through so much time filled up with water and then the processes that have taken place after that. I'm sure it was just I mean it's a once in a lifetime experience. E- even for someone that's so experienced as you, it's just like unreal. I'm sure it was absolutely unreal to be there.
1: Yeah, it was it was definitely um An unusual geologic feature, I'd say. And the stalactites, have, they've been underwater for so long that they are covered in marine growth, too. So it's like big stalactite cave rocks, but then they're covered in layer upon layer upon layer of, of algae and I don't know what kind of stuff is growing on there. But they're kind of like they're even thicker than they formed as stone because they're covered in um all of this marine life.
0: So so. was there a network of caves down there that you could see into other passages or was it pretty much just a, a cylindrical hole straight down to the bottom?
1: Yeah, well, we were looking for networks. Um, it it seems very reasonable that, that if this form is a giant cavern, that there would be a network a kind of affiliated with it. Um, we were kind of using our, our high-resolution sonar to try and, um, see deeper into the caverns and it's pretty likely that they that they do go a ways in but the the channels between them are small enough that we certainly couldn't um you know go pilot into them or fit through them or anything like that but we did every once in a while right around that that big stalactite area it's called the south grotto yeah did feel like a teeny tiny movement of water not necessarily a surface-driven current; it's a little bit too deep for that. But um, some sort of some sort of little movement of water. So I think there is water flowing around this huge cave network. And and Lighthouse Reef is, um, I think, twelve miles long, and and so it's likely that there's caverns all along it. This is just one that the roof has collapsed in, so we can we can see into it. But presumably it runs a huge length of the Belize
0: Barrier Reef System. Wow. So, so no no successful, may, maybe some places that might have had some passageways, but nothing definitive. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode.
1: Yeah, not really definitive from our perspective. We were there with our sonar equipment, and we created a big 3D map of the hole. We used um, three different styles of sonar to do it and overlaid um, all of this this different type of data on top of each other. We had what's called point cloud data. Uh, we had scanning sonar data. We had a kind of multi-beam data, and we put them all together and created a map. So we do have a map of Blue Hole now. But the the sonar works like sight. If there's something blocking your view, it does the same thing to sound. It blocks the sound, and so we can't see past the stalactites with the sonar uh, because the sound just reflects back off the stalactites. So probably in there. But in our map, it's stalactites, cave walls, and the and the bottom contours.
0: Wow. And what about the bottom? Was it pretty flat or 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 not? No,
1: the bottom was actually, that bottom had a lot of interesting features. There was, um, so around 300 feet deep, there's this layer of acid. There's a layer of hydrogen sulfide that you can Whoa. see. And when scuba divers go through it, they can physically smell it. Uh, It smells like rotten eggs. It's sulfur.
0: Oh, my god! And so
1: we pass through this hydrogen sulfide layer, and on the bottom, there's absolutely no oxygen. There's no life below the acid. And um, the bottom had a lot of interesting features. Everything from, uh, in one case, a a huge fallen stalactite. You can tell that as something shifted, a stalactite broke off, and it's laying on the bottom. And um, uh, an old gravity core from some sort of scientific expedition, you know, decades ago. There's this huge steel tube sticking out of the bottom, like very man-made steel tube. And, you know, somebody lost a gravity core when they were trying to to punch through the layers of sediment. Um, and there's also this this big berm of sand that runs like a ring all the way around the inside. Uh, from the way that the sand pours into the hole, so you can imagine, kind of, you know, like a like a kid playing in the sand. If you make a hole underneath a pile of sand with your hand, it creates a hole, and there's sort of this waterfall of sand that falls down from the outside. So it's creating this giant steep berm, and we are actually able to get between the rock wall and the berm and pile it in this this trench almost, and the trench was pretty interesting because it was uh it was it was like driving through with giant mountain ranges um two feet to your left and two feet to your right that just kind of go straight up and you're just in this little channel um and the whole the whole world is above you you know it's um kind of eerie and also geologically a very fun place to pilot
0: so cool so I was going to, that was one of my questions actually was, did you find anything man-made? Because boats are just free to ride over this if they want to. And there's tons of boats out in that area, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Lots of, um, lots of dive boats. So they go in for, you know, a little morning dive in Lighthouse Reef. Lots of scuba dive boats. And um, I mean, it is a protected area, so you're not actually supposed to drive across the hole. Uh, unless you're, you know, have some very specific scientific purpose like us. We drove straight across the whole lot. Um, but there were little man-made things. There were, you know, fair amount of lost scuba equipment, weight belts, fins. We even found, um, there's, you know, a couple of plastic bottles, those inevitable kind of things. But we even found a, um, a GoPro in an underwater housing with one of those little floating handles. Um, laying in the sand, and we collected it. We scooped it up. We brought it back up to the surface.
0: Were you able to salvage anything from it?
1: Well, obviously, it smelled like ozone. The water had crushed it, and it was completely like burnt up and black and carbonized, gross and disgusting. We popped the SD card out, put it in a computer, and lo and behold, we have some random guys scuba diving footage, and then a video where they dropped the GoPro into the hole.
0: <laughs> no way. So, so what, what did it look like they were doing before? Were they on a boat or something?
1: Yeah, we, we even know what scuba dive boat they were on. So we're trying to find this guy and um, return his SD card from 400 feet down. How about that for a recovery story?
0: Yeah, we need to... I mean, I'm sure GoPro has a list of their like craziest stories. They've got to find out about that because, I mean, that's... With the resiliency that it takes to survive that who know how long was it down there? do you have any idea about that?
1: yeah the GoPro the SD card has the dates <laughs> so we know exactly we know exactly the day and even the time that it fell
0: oh my gosh has it i mean has it been a while
1: a year it's been one year oh
0: my god that's yeah that's about uh I mean I was mountain biking in the mountains last year and on this very um not very heavily used trail. And I found a GoPro on the trail on the side of the trail and it had been there a few years and it was, I popped the SD card out and it still worked all the footage was there. You can see right when it fell off, but there was no information to find the the uh, owner. Oh yeah. But man, they, those things are crazy, crazy strong. That is so, that is so cool.
1: Yeah. It's pretty, pretty fun, pretty fun things to find down there. There was a site on the bottom that we, so as pilots, we, we navigate mostly by sight and, and by sonar because visibility is so often limited. Um, it's basically limited to the maximum reach of our lights in a very, very dark place. And so that can be anywhere. If the water is really murky, that can be zero feet. Or if the water is very clear, that can be 80 um, to 100 feet. And so we're down there navigating and We've actually got two submarines on this expedition. We're piloting with another submarine in the water, and we have underwater telephones so we can talk to them um, acoustically. It kind of sounds like garbled, you know, like a tin can on a string, you know, we're at 200 feet, you know. What? <laughs> and so we make these names for places so that we can tell the other pilots where to go. And there's one spot on the bottom that we called the Conk Graveyard. And it's a wall on this big berm of sand, that big ridge of sand I was talking about that runs the entire interior. And there's a spot right at what's called the north entrance to the hole. It's a it's a big gap in the reef. And it's pretty clear that poor little unsuspecting conks have been crawling over the edge of the hole um so often that there's thousands of them down there and it's completely anoxic. There's no oxygen. So they kind of try to crawl out, but they're 400 feet deep in a steep sided cave on the bottom where there's no oxygen. So, you know, obviously they don't last very long. So there's one spot, um, kind of near the North entrance that we call the comp graveyard. And, um, yeah, it's just little little things you learn about a site uh, that make it so clear this sort of connection between your experience as a submarine pilot and submarine crew and and the the science that makes something true. We obviously the the winds um, the winds are kind of north northeast most of the time, and so this entrance is probably the heaviest input of sand, because that's where the wind is blowing from all the time. And it's not until we got down there and saw this giant pile of conch and sand that we that we made the connection. You know, we realized this is the most predominant wind direction. That's why the sand is falling in the hole here. It's probably sand shifting that runs the conks over the edge. They might not be crawling over by themselves. It's these weird little connections like that that seem so small. But are so dramatic when when you're down there and you realize them. It's it's these little light bulbs that go off.
0: Yeah, that I mean, <laughs> that's, that's really sad, but it's it makes perfect sense. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. these poor things. They don't know. They they're not looking around. They just are going off the edge, or like you said, get kind of shifted over the edge by the currents and the wind, and. There is literally no hope once they get out. And there's so many, that is, that is something that you would never expect. But once you know it's there, it makes perfect sense. Um,
1: exactly. And it's just an expedition like this is just a thousand little realizations like that.
0: Okay. Well, so what are some more that that, of things that were like, oh my gosh, that is so weird. It, but this hole is creating this phenomenon.
1: Um, well, I mean, the, the, the cool thing about the hole is that it is um, completely isolated from the powerful erosion of ocean currents. You know, it's like this measuring stick that's preserved from the disturbance of time because there's no current that gets down to 400 feet. It's completely stagnant. The, um, the walls of the hole are this perfect record of sea level rise. And so as you're going up and down the the walls, you're looking at their their calcium carbonate walls. Basically, the, the way that all of this stuff formed is reef grew in what was then the shallows, let's call it 10 feet of water, sea level rose. So that reef kind of got crushed and new reef grew on top of it. And again, over and over and over again for thousands of years, or sorry, for the last 14, yeah, I used to say 14,000 years, reef has been growing on reef as ocean levels been rising. So the walls of this cave um, in, at different levels are, are thick layers of calcium carbonate. They're thick layers of coral and shell and rock. And um, you can see these embedded, you know, they might be, you can tell if they're, if it's like, you know, two feet thick, then it was probably a pretty short period of time that sea level was at that layer because maybe two feet of coral growth compounded down in that rock was, you know, 20 or 30 years, for sea level was at that level. Then you go up this very steep vertical limestone wall and then there might be a layer of calcium carbonate that's 10 feet thick and you think, wow, that's must, sea level must have been there for five times longer. And what you see in this record of the hole is that sea level doesn't rise gradually. It rises in steps. And the steps could last, um, many thousands of years or they could last, you know, a few decades. And so there are certain parts of the hole where we can see that sea level can rise as much as a hundred feet in a hundred years. And then it's followed by a very long period of time where it doesn't move at all. And so what does that, you know, what does that tell us for our future? Are we planning on the oceans rising slowly and building levees and walls and protecting our coastlines, assuming that that sea level is going to be gradual? Because what the hole tells us is that's not the case. It's going to rise dramatically and then it'll be stagnant for a while. So I think when you really look at it, You know, things are in terms of sea level rise. For us right now, as humans, things are going to get worse before they get better. And if we're aware of how much it's going to rise, maybe we can maybe we can make some plans accordingly.
0: I guess I did. I I knew that that was one of the big reasons, but I didn't know why the the blue hole was such a good litmus test. So thanks for explaining that. That makes sense. Um, and I know Discovery mm-hmm. Channel had tweeted about that during during the live stream and Richard Branson obviously talked about it so you saw places where the water had risen that quickly in that few of years do do you know what oh, was yeah. happening oh, yeah. what was happening during that time and how long ago was that?
1: um it's all different i mean there's there's white papers that are written up on this um you can you can read all about the um the, the time periods that all of this exactly happened. Um, yeah. There's several several different layers of it, and and right now we're we're sending our sonar scan. Part of the reason we did the scan is to measure the depth of these terraces into the wall, and their frequency up the wall, and their distances apart. And then geologists can take a look at that this new data that we're providing them, and really put numbers on the evidence that we can see. Um, so, so there will be a lot of really cool follow up from this.
0: So is the world was warming at that time, obviously dramatically.
1: Well, it's been, yeah, it's been warming. It's been warming for the last 14,000 years Mm -hmm. since the last glacial maximum, the world goes through ice ages, you know, every, 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 we've had four ice ages just in our, um, just in our epic, you know, this yeah. we're in this sort of Quaternary epic. Uh, we've had four big ice ages, and the the one that ended about fourteen thousand years ago was really just a little one.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely terrifying <laughs> to think. I know. Oh my gosh. But, then,
1: but yeah, it's just the whole the whole is just a good reminder that we are, you know, we're just a very we're a very short period at the top ta- of time, um, in the middle of a very long very long history of a planet, and um, yeah, just a, it just sort of you you sit on the bottom at 400 feet, and you're looking up at this pale blue circle of light that you can just barely see above you, and remembering, just kind of realizing how I don't know how much life has gone on since the beginning of of, of life on planet Earth, and it, it kind of it's kind of cool, you know everything everything has led to this moment for you. And that's a, that's a cool realization too.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think that's, you know, it's like looking at, you know, layers of sediment or, or if if you want to take it to the human aspect, layers of, of cities and these ancient cities, maybe in the Middle East or in Rome and, and seeing how many feet of literally stuff gets piled on top of itself. And for this whole, 400 feet of, of life of coral growing over itself. I mean, I'm sure it makes you feel incredibly insignificant, but also comforting in the no- knowing that how resilient the world is and how, yeah, how precious it is. It's, it's life is life is resilient, but we also have an incredible responsibility of not taking it for granted and not doing yeah. anything to disrupt it, the possibility that it continues.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: That is so amazing. So so did the did the expedition achieve everything it set out to? And uh was there any um unforeseen achievements, maybe, that were like, wow, this this happened because we did this?
1: Yeah. Well I, I we did we did achieve um most of our goals. We we got a lot of people down on dives. We were uh, we went into the Great Blue Hole, with the full support of the Belize government, and um, in partnership with the Belize Audubon Society, which which um, organizes and runs the that, that UNESCO World Heritage site. So we went in as as a partner, as rather than just kind of a user of somebody else's, um, you know, precious precious site. And and that was really big for for the Belize government and for the Belize people, because, you know, tourists come and just kind of use the hole and leave and, and don't think about who's doing the work behind protecting it, the conservation, the policy. So we went in really planning to deliver them all of this data, support them by bringing awareness to the hole and, and what we found in it and tell stories about it. So our big goal was, was, you know, being a positive collaborator in a place like that and, Setting a setting the stage to do the same thing all around the world. So that was our, our number one, you know, mission objective and and we definitely accomplished that. There was a group of students from the local university that we were really hoping to take on dives, but the weather turned so nasty that the um to get from Belize City out to the Great Blue Hole is about um, a two and a half to three hour boat ride in in, in like really nasty seas, everyone would have been just like, everyone would have been seasick and so uncomfortable. So they didn't, um, they didn't come out for their dives, but we did take uh local coast guard and, um, members of, of different NGOs that were already out in Lighthouse Reef, people from Mar Alliance. And it was just great to take all of these unique NGO and and government officials down to see something that they've been working so hard to protect from the surface and this is the first time that they've actually gotten to lay eyes on it in a way that they you know that nobody that nobody has ever offered them before so that was a really really cool thing
0: let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. That's that's incredible. Uh, you know, nothing nothing sets your heart and mind to align to to protect something or to, you know, do some sort of project that when you physically get to see it, you know, you can give money to something all day long, but until you go see the problem you're solving, oh, you're you're a lifetime you're committed at that point.
1: Oh, totally. And so one of yeah, some of these people we took down um, completely pro bono but the you know a lot of the expedition was paid for by sponsorship some of it was in-kind sponsorship and some of it was was actual sponsorship dollars and some of the folks that came had had paid for this experience you know they were enthusiastic about ocean conservation enthusiastic about the experience of diving in a submarine going down 400 feet in a in an oceanic sinkhole. And so some of the people we had out there were, were wealthy individuals who, who want to see their money go to good work and they want to see where it's going. We took them on dives and, and you know, after that, they're, they're, they're regular committed members of uh, funding ocean conservation. You know, every new place that we go for conservation purposes, they're going to come out, they're going to help with the sponsorship and they're going to get to go on a dive. And so it's really gratifying, I think, for people who are in the the philanthropy kind of um, you know percentage of the world, they want to see their money do good stuff, and um, and this was a way for them to see their money do some really really cool work. So we've we've made a lot of we've made a lot of repeat um, you know sponsor clients for conservation as well, and that feels pretty good.
0: Absolutely. So. You know, going from this, what what other work does this project involve for you, or is your role in it complete and and what does the future hold for you? What are some things you're looking forward to?
1: Yeah, well, it's a it's a couple things. We're still doing follow up on the whole. We've got all this beautiful media, and so now, um, if you if you um, spend time on our our YouTube channel or our Instagram, we're just now. Editing together all of these great little clips from all of the media that we collected, and writing articles, giving talks, especially to schools, uh, and then putting all of this data—the data that we collected—is all going to be available. Um, it's going—it's going through a blockchain, so basically, you just get a, a a password, and then you can access all the data. So we're getting all of that stuff set up so we can give the data. To anyone who wants it, it's going to be this beautiful 3D sonar data, and, um, you could do anything you want with it. You could 3D print, you could 3D print a coffee table, or, um, you know, you could do anything. Make it into a, make it into a 3D printed coffee mug with a great poo hole. <laughs> uh, That's so there's crazy. lots of cool stuff that we're doing like that too. And, but I say we're also, you know, this one Belize is, you know, we're done, we're finished with that expedition. And now the submarine is back in Texas. And we are running full speed ahead for our next expedition. So we're getting everything prepped to go down and get the submarine ready to get on a different ship. Because our next expedition is in April. And we're going to the British Virgin
0: Islands. Oh, wow. That's uh sounds sounds like a tough place to go yeah (laughs) so what are you doing down there
1: yeah well well, uh we're headed to bvi um again we're we're doing it in partnership with a bunch of ngos including a couple supported by richard branson um he loves he loves our submarine he thinks it's awesome (laughs) so (laughs) so we're doing some more work with with branson um i don't know if you remember hurricane irma in 2017 oh yeah but it was the The biggest hurricane that has ever hit the Atlantic. Biggest recorded hurricane. And um, it really ripped apart the BDIs. It ripped apart, you know, huge chunks of Puerto Rico. It ripped up a lot of the Eastern Caribbean. And there was a lot of reef conservation that had been going on in the last 10 years. Because in 2010, there was a, a massive coral bleaching event. 90% 90% of the corals in British Virgin Islands were bleached. People have been restoring them. And then this hurricane rolls through and just just ripped them out by the roots. So we're going to create a, a baseline survey of a, you know, freshly damaged reef so that subsequent surveys can, can quantify how much it's recovered and how quickly. Um, so we'll continue to survey it, you know, every few years. As a as a, a a big scientific baseline study.
0: So, so you say you, you keep talking about the submarine. Um, now this submarine, can you tell us about what what makes this thing unique? Because there's I, I I read a lot about it, but but you said Richard Branson also likes it. So what's uh what's so different about it?
1: Yeah, well it's um the so it's called the, the Stingray 500, and um, we're currently building two more. Right now, they're called the the S3s. Um, so they fit three people, and the essentially it's this big acrylic sphere. So the three passengers who are sitting inside can look around in absolutely every direction. It's like going to the aquarium, to the biggest glass wall in the aquarium, and being able to look everywhere. And so that's kind of the the main feature of the submarine that makes it just wicked cool. And then it's also really easy to hand the controls over to 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 new pilots or or passengers. Um the, the single pilot in the center can be controlling, you know, really critical features, uh, life support and and buoyancy. But the submarine is is piloted, we just put in a, a gamepad controller. So it's a it's like an Xbox controller. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so um it's really easy to physically drive it. You know, you're you're sitting there next to someone and you can be giving them, you know, mild directions about where to go and speed and um kind of the mass of a vehicle moving through water. And they get a really good grasp of how to pilot the vehicle very quickly without obviously having to worry about the minutiae of of um piloting that the the actual pilot in the center is dealing with. So it's really a fun submarine. I gave uh, I gave almost everyone who wants to an, an opportunity to drive. I let I let Fabian drive when we were on our way to the Blue Hole, and um, I gave Branson the controls at the end, and he was so excited. He was he was telling me, and he's British, right? So he's uh, I'm the submarine skipper now. Now I'm the submarine skipper. You can be my co-pilot. <laughs> uh, he was just having a great time. <laughs> oh,
0: I can I can hear that. I can hear him saying
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> didn't want to give the controls back and that's that's one of the cool features about it too is, is how maneuverable it is it just makes sense to a lot of people um, and then we you know we have a lot of safety features things um, under the hood of the car so to speak that make it a very safe vehicle and really high operational standards so safety is paramount and um, as a team we have you know procedures and and mechanical things in place in the submarine that the passengers never really see, but make make us as a team feel really good about um, about piloting it and, and uh, going out to explore the world. So that's that's one of the coolest things. Is, yeah. The gamepad. People are into the gamepad.
0: <laughs> what a, I don't know, what a, what a unique thing to have in, just to keep the, the visitor in mind, the guest in mind. Uh, yeah, that's, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing you're going to do like saying, i, I I may, I controlled a submarine somewhere. Like how cool yeah. is that? That's, that's really yeah. smart of you guys to put that together. You, you've you got to have the coolest job. One of the coolest jobs I've <laughs> ever heard I do like of.
1: it. There are little things that come up with it. So, I mean, okay, just between you and me and all of your listeners. Yeah. Like um,
0: 10, this was the first
1: people. time <laughs> that we had run. <laughs> this is the first time that we had run with the game pad. And so, We, um, you know, it's just, it's just got a little USB plug in. It's, it's hardwired. Um, so it's a little USB that plugs into our brand. It's called a scuff controller. It's just kind of a high end gamepad controller. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting out there in Belize. My passengers are already offloaded. We've had a great dive. And our procedure for, for meeting up with the ship to get picked out of the water by the A frame is, it's pretty intense because of the wind out there. While we were out there, the ship is swinging and this is a 175 foot steel ship. I mean, this thing is swinging fast. And so there's a tiny little 45 second window when it's at the apex of its swing, when the submarine can approach, get taglines on, get hooked up very quickly to lift the submarine. And um, we got really good at it. It was a, a definitely a solid procedure. and um, but it meant that the submarine has to wait about four minutes for the ship to go through an entire swing cycle before it gets to that that one particular apex where you're going to go in and, and get picked up. So I'm sitting out there. I'm enjoying the sun. I'm looking around. I've got the game pad. I, I set the game pad down um, on the the little like kind of on the hatch ring, and uh, just adjusting a little cover here and there and. <laughs> The USB cord came detached, and the gamepad controller fell in the water.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> Which
1: means <laughs> I just watched it like plunk. Oh, there it goes. Which means, uh, um, hey guys, I just dropped the controller in the water. <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> but <laughs> oh no.
1: Obviously, it's not. It's not good. Um, but we have so many. We have so many procedures backed up planned for in like worst case scenario that within about two and a half minutes, I had a brand new game pad controller plugged in and was on my way to the ship. It was like, it was just, it was no big deal because we have planned for every single possible eventuality. And, and in most cases, like in this case, it was two and a half minutes. I called them up. I told them I dropped the controller in the water and, um, and then I had a new one in my hand, and we were good to go. So it's, you know, we we definitely learned things on expedition, but we also feel pretty good about the prep work that we did before we headed into a situation like that.
0: No kidding! I, I just can't wait for the scuba diver to be like, "What the hell's an Xbox controller doing down here?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we actually we recovered it.
0: Oh, for real? <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's we too funny. To it.
1: We wanted, we wanted to take a look at it, so we
0: recovered it. We didn't want to leave any plastic in the ocean. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, it's, uh, yeah, that's good because, yeah, I was at the beach just this week uh, over the break, and people just think the ocean's just one big trash can. Like, they can just throw something in there, and it's forgotten forever. So, I'm glad that, you know, you have that kind of integrity to, to say, yeah. you know, no one saw that. It's, this place is enormous this will n- not make a difference, but it does. So cool. Well, congratulations. Yeah. thats uh, That's got to be a highlight of your life so far. Um, but by no means is it going to be, um, I'm sure you're going to do dozens and dozens of more expeditions, if not hundreds like this that are just as epic and just as awesome. So congrats. Yeah, I hope so yeah Hope so thank you. yeah that's just, it's too cool. and so um, how if people want to follow you guys and what you're doing and what um, Aquatica Submarines is doing, how can they do that?
1: Um, well we've, we we uh, we take great pride in our instagram so it's at aquatica Subs is our instagram and our our YouTube is uh, Aquatica Submarines. you can find you can find us on um, Facebook we have we have a webpage AquaticaSubmarines.com. And, um, that's kind of where we're, we're taking our pride and joy, creating little media sizzles for everyone to see what it's like, um, to, to be a submarine crew and put a little behind the scenes stuff in there. We like interaction. If, if people send us messages like, Hey, send a picture of what it looks like, you know, doing this or doing this. We, we like that kind of thing. There's, we're a small crew and, and so interaction kind of makes us feel like like our crew was a little bit bigger. So we're very, we're very open to that. And um, yeah, those are our main, those are our main little spots in articles and that kind of thing. But
0: yeah, I mean, well, what, what you're, what's so cool about is what you're doing. So visually captivating that it's perfect for Instagram. Like I'm, I'm scrolling through it right now. And obviously the submarine itself is gorgeous. And and that um, acrylic dome sphere that you're in is just so cool. And everything it captures is just gorgeous. So from the machinery itself to the places that you're taking it, it's really awesome just to scroll through what you've seen on it. That's, that's so cool. So congratulations on all the work and, in and the effort and the successful mission.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Well, we'll be in touch. Uh, we'll be in touch around BVI.
0: Yeah, please do. Like we, we'd love to, I mean, we don't have any other, um, submarine pilot that we talk to on a regular basis. So you've got that market on <laughs> yeah. this show all to yourself.
1: <laughs> all right. I'll take, I'll take that.
0: Oh man. Yeah. You've got it. You've got it. Uh, and no one's going to beat what you've already done. So, so it's all yours. Well, good. We'll reach back out and, and, uh, excited to get this up. Thanks again for uh, being on the show.
1: Sure. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to, to following along. Congrats on your Congrats on your podcast growing.
0: Oh, it's, it's, you know, well, when we keep having guests like you, you know, it's gonna, people want to hear an interesting story like this. So, Mm -hmm. so it's uh, really, it's a lot to do with who we have on the guests. So, so thank you.
1: Sure. Thanks very much.
0: First of all,